Taking a Bible, if you don't have one, perhaps there's one in the pew, and be turning to the book of Romans, chapter 1, will be our beginning place. In fact, we're going to spend our time in Romans chapter 1 this morning. Glad that you're here. We have visitors. We're glad that you've come. Hope you can come back and be with us on other occasions. The theme of the book of Romans is about salvation by faith in Christ and not by the law of Moses. That theme is driven home in the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. There are three major sections to the book. Chapters 1 through 8 deals with justification by faith apart from the law. We're saved by faith in Christ and not through the law of Moses, not through the keeping of the law. Chapters 9 through 11 is a parenthetical section, an important section, that deals with how God has rejected the Jews and accepted the Gentiles. That's based upon the fact that the principles of chapters 1 through 8 are true. And then 12 to 16 deals with the Christian life and relationships. Now chapter 1 of the book of Romans presents to us the gospel as the power of God unto salvation. Look at verse 16 with me, if you will. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation, to everyone who believes to, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. We'll talk more about his saying that he's not ashamed of the gospel and what is the contents of the gospel, but he says... But the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation. So let's talk about the power of God to salvation. And let's begin with this. In verses 1 to 6, the focus is on the message of the gospel. The message that the apostle is presenting in this book and that he preaches, of which he is the messenger later in the chapter, is the message of the gospel of God, he calls it. So let's look at verses 1 to 6. Verse 1, he said, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. What is the message that is the power of God, Paul? The message that is the power of God to salvation is the gospel of God. The word gospel originally referred to a reward that was given for, to one who revealed good news. And then simply it came to mean simply good news. Here it has to do with God's good news to humans. This message is a message of good news for people that they might hear the message of God. Now he calls it the message of God or the gospel of God, verse 1. It means simply that God is the source. Three times in the context... He tells us that God is the source of this gospel. At verse 1, he calls it the gospel of God. Look with me at verse 9. He calls it the gospel of his son. And then in verse 16, he calls it the gospel of Christ. So three times before we get through with the chapter, he's reminded us of the source of this message. This is the gospel of God. What Paul is saying is, the message that I'm preaching, I did not get it from man. I indeed got it from God. Let's turn to the book of Galatians, if you will. The Judaizing teachers, which is part of the background of the book of Romans, as well as Galatians, as well as even some things at Corinth. 
said that Paul indeed was not an apostle, that he did not receive the revelation from God. He's made this up himself or received it from some man. Some man told him what to preach. So Paul addresses that in Galatians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, or 11 and 12. He said, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me was not according to man. For I neither received it from, from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. His claim was, I didn't originate this message, nor did it come from any other man. It came from the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 6 through verse 13. We won't read that entire section. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 6 says that however we speak wisdom among those who are by nature, who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. What are you speaking, Paul? I'm not speaking the wisdom that comes from man, verse 6, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Where did you get this? Let's drop down now at verse 10. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. He did not receive it from man. Notice at verse 13, the things which we speak not in words, which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So here's what we learn from this calling, this is the gospel of God. The message preached then, the message that's preached now, should only be what God has revealed. Paul would tell Timothy, preach the word. And that follows on the heels of the inspired word of God being mentioned three verses before. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 11, speak as the oracles are the sayings of God. So here's something practical to conclude from that. Whether you're teaching as a Bible class teacher, whether you preach in the pulpit on a regular basis, or you preach occasionally, or you're teaching your neighbor over uh, your dinner table, whenever you're teaching the Word of God, if you can't prove it by the text, you can't preach it by faith. In other words, you can't go to your neighbor and tell them, here's what the truth is when you can't prove it by the text. You can't get in a pulpit and preach something and say this is the truth unless you can prove it by the text. You can't teach a Bible class and teach this is what God said unless you can prove it by the text. If you can prove it by the text, you can preach it by faith. If it can't be found in the text, you cannot preach it by faith. What Paul said he preached was the gospel that originated from God. But we're still now in verses 1 to 6. This gospel that he preached... Contents thereof was foretold in the prophets. Look at verse 2. We're still in Romans 1. That's where we're going to be. Look at verse 2. Which he promised beforehand through, before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel of God that I am preaching, he said that I'm separated unto, is a message that was foretold in the prophets. Now it was true that, the, that a new message was being foretold in the prophets. But he's talking about the contents about Christ. The message of the Messiah was foretold in the prophets. We won't read the details thereof, but the prophecy of his birth, that he would be born of a virgin, that he'd be born in Bethlehem, for example, Micah 5 and 2, Isaiah 7, 14. There was the prophecy of his death, that indeed he would die. The events of his death, uh, the details of his death, the reason for his death, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. There was the prophecy of his resurrection, that his soul would not be left in Hades, nor would his body see corruption, Psalm 16 and in verse 10. There was the prophecy of a new covenant that we noticed last week. There was coming a new covenant that's not according to the old. 
So there was the prophecy indeed concerning the contents of this message. So what is the message, Paul, that you're preaching? The gospel of God that was foretold in the prophets, but he's not through. He tells us that this message in verses 3 to 5 concerned Jesus Christ. In fact, he uses that very term, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now that's the message that I'm preaching. It concerns the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what about the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it deals with his humanity, that indeed he was of the seed of David. Look at verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So he's going now to connect the humanity of Jesus of Nazareth with the one who indeed is the divine Son of God. We'll do that later in verse 4. But he's saying he's of the seed of David. So that tells me two things. It tells me something of his humanity, but it also tells me that if he's of the lineage of David, then he is the one that indeed can sit on David's throne, Psalm 89. But let's go a little bit further. Notice in verse 4. This concerns his son Jesus that indeed he is deity. He, in verse 4, is declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. And so he said this gospel message concerns Jesus. What does it say about him? Well, it talks about the one who is of the seed of David, that is Jesus of Nazareth, indeed is deity, he is the Son of God. For a connection on that, you might think about John chapter 5 and verse 17. Jesus claimed God was his Father, They said he was guilty of blasphemy, verse 19, because he claimed to be equal with God. So the statement of being the Son of God means he's equal with God, he's deity himself. Verse 4 says he was raised from the dead. That was the ultimate proof that indeed he is the Son of God. So he said he was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. So any evidence of the resurrection of Christ, like the empty tomb, or the change in the Jews, conversion of Saul of Tarsus, all gives evidence indeed of his deity that he is who he claims to be. Now verse 5. Verse 5 says that it's by him that we receive grace, and he adds apostleship as in his case the apostle Paul, that it is through Jesus Christ that we receive the grace of God. I think perhaps he's talking about two things. One is the grace that we, by which we are saved. We're going to see more about that in this context. But also the apostleship was a matter of grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 and 10. But it is by him and through him, through the one that is the Son of God who was raised from the dead, by him we receive grace. Now that is the message that he's preaching, but he's not through. He says this message that I'm preaching must be obeyed. Look at verse 5. We haven't got five verses into the book. And he's already telling us these elements about the message that he preaches. Through whom we receive grace and apostleship, for the obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. And so he said this message, the message that is preached, indeed is a message that must be obeyed. Now it's interesting to me that a book begins, I know that's not the very first verse, verse 5 is not the very first verse, but it's at the beginning of the book. Let's go now to the ending of the book, again, not the very last verse, but the next to last verse, and you find a very similar phrase. Book ending this message of the book with two statements concerning obedience for the faith or to the faith. Look at verse 26. And has now been made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures has made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for the obedience to the faith. 
The obedience of faith, the obedience to the faith, and sandwiched in between is all about that obedience to the faith. So faith must be obedient. So Paul said the message of the gospel is a message that is to be preached, but not only believed and accepted, it must be responded to, it must be obeyed. 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, 1 and verse 22, truth must be obeyed, seeing you purified your souls in obeying the truth. This gospel message demands a response. In fact, the first time this message was preached under the Great Commission, upon hearing that message and believing it, they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? There is something we need to do. And they were told to repent and be baptized. So this must be obeyed. This is a message that demands a response. But here's something else he says about this message, and that is it is for all nations. Look at verse 5. He said, through whom we receive grace and apostleship for the obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. We noticed last week as we talked about the Old Testament that the Old Testament law was only for the Jews. The advantage the Jew had over the Gentile that to them was given the oracles of God, Romans 3 and in verse 2. They had something, chapter 2 and verse 14 said, the Gentiles did not have. So the Old Testament law was only for the Jews, but the great commission of carrying the gospel was for all nations. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's what this passage is telling us. So I want you to notice now what he says about this message. What is the summary of the message? He says it is the gospel of God. The message that the prophets had foretold about, the coming of the Messiah, it concerns Jesus Christ, His humanity, His deity, His resurrection, that He is the giver of grace. It must be responded to, and it's for all nations. That's the message that has the power to save. If we don't already have this, this fixed in our minds, I want us to understand from verses 1 to 5 that the gospel message is a redemptive message. It is not a message for the improvement and the betterment of mankind. That's not the point of the message. It is a redemptive message, a message of redemption in Christ Jesus. That is the gospel message. And when we get away from the redemptive message, we've got away from the gospel of Christ. So that's the message that has the power to save. Now, any other message won't have the power. But if it's a message about Jesus Christ, a message coming from God that concerns obedience to the gospel, that is for all nations, that's the message that has the power to save. Now, that's the message. Let's talk about the messenger. We start again at verse 1, and then we're going to pick up at verse 15. We're not noticing every verse in, in Romans 1. The verses we're skipping has to do with his exhortation to the church itself uh, of how he's sending this letter and how he rejoiced over them. Those are important sections, but not pertinent to the point we're trying to make concerning the power of God to salvation. So let's see what he says about the messenger. What do we learn about the messenger? Well, the messenger is ready to preach. But Paul said he was ready to do in fact, let's get ahead of ourselves to verse 15 to get the gist. He said, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome also. But long before he does that, he says something at verse 1, and let's see what he says. At verse 1, he says, he's separated unto the gospel. Look at verse 1. He said, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. First of all, let's talk about him being a servant. Thayer says this word servant describes one who gives oneself up wholly to another's will. It's a slave. It's one who gives himself up wholly to another's will. Those whose agency God employs executing his purposes. Are you a servant of the Lord? 
Do you view yourself as a servant of the Lord where you're giving yourself wholly, not partially, but wholly to the will of Christ and that you want to be an agent of God in executing his purpose? I want God to use me. As Paul viewed himself as a servant, he's a messenger of the gospel. And he said, I am a servant. And then he said, I'm set apart or separated unto the gospel. The NET translates that, that he's set apart for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel. I've dedicated my life and been called to be an apostle, he said, but I've dedicated my life to being a servant, to be used as a tool of God to carrying out his purpose and that of his message. I'm separated unto the gospel. Look at verse 14. Here's how he viewed his mission. Verse 14 says, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. He viewed the work that he had to do with great deep responsibility. He viewed it as if it was a debt that was owed. If you borrowed $1,000, $10,000, $100,000, whatever amount that would register in your mind as a deep debt that you would owe, and now that sense of obligation that you feel, that sickening feeling almost, where you feel a sense of obligation of paying that back. That's how the apostle felt about his responsibility to preach the gospel. I am a debtor, he said. It's something I owe. It's something I have to do. One of the pieces of advice that we often give young preachers as we're working with them in preacher training programs, as I often do, is don't preach unless you have to. And their reaction may be what you're thinking now. You think, well, that's bad advice to give anybody. Do you think of what that means? In fact, we asked them, you go learn what that means. Come back and explain it to us. Don't preach unless you have to. What does that mean? That means if, you, if, if you're choosing preaching as a profession, this goes for Bible class teachers too. If you look at it as just a, a, a profession that I can choose, but I could choose to do something, I might choose another profession over here. You don't need to do it. You're not fit to preach. Don't do that. Only preach if you feel like that's all I can do. That I have a burning desire. I have a debt. This is what I have to do. Then you'll be useful. That's what Paul is saying. I, I feel like this is what I have to do. There's a burning message within me. Like we read in the book of Jeremiah. Let's go to verse 15 now. I'm separated under the gospel and he said I'm ready to preach. Talked about coming to Rome and he said, he said this, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome also. What does it mean to be ready? It means to be eager, enthusiastic to teach. The English standard, the New American standard translates that eager. I'm eager, he said, to preach. The New Century translates it thus, I want so much to preach. You say you're not a preacher. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2 says you need to be a teacher. You may be in a Bible class. You may be teaching your neighbor. You may be teaching your children. Is your attitude, I want so much to teach somebody the gospel. Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says this word that is translated ready or eager means passionate. Are you passionate about teaching? Whatever the Lord has revealed. In other words, not just willing to teach if the occasion arises or if I have to, or if you can't get somebody else. Passionate, eager. I want so much to teach, Paul said. You didn't have to beg him to do it. He was willing and eager. 
But the idea of being ready to preach means he was prepared to teach. When someone says, I'm ready, and then they're not prepared, they're not ready. It's like someone saying, I'm ready to go. All right, let's go. Well, I got to go get dressed. <laughs> I got to go change clothes. I got to go feed the dog. You're not ready then, are you? Are you ready to teach? Are you ready to preach? It means you're prepared to do that. What does it mean to be prepared? Well, you have to know what you're teaching. Remember the Hebrews were rebuked? We'll talk about this a little tonight. By the time they ought to be teaching other people, they had need someone teach them again. That which they once knew. They'd forgotten. You must know in order to teach. Being ready to teach, we must know the text in its context. Not just know some text that we can cite, but know the text in its context. What is this text saying in its context? And that's the point, by the way, of 2 Peter 3.18, growing the grace and the knowledge. Look at the context. Some, according to verse 16, would twist, in other words, take text out of their context. And because they could easily mislead verse 17, you need to grow in the grace and the knowledge. Put your text back in its context is what the text is saying. Being prepared to teach means I need to study. Paul told Timothy, till I come give attendance unto reading. You need to read, Timothy. You need to read. You need to study. Make yourself prepared to teach. One who's ready to teach needs to be ready for success and also rejection. The one who is eager and enthusiastic is often ready for success. I'm ready to go conquer the world. And the first wall of objection, they're ready to throw up their hands and quit. Many of the preachers have done that. And I've been tempted to do the same. If you're ready to go out and conquer the world, you're ready to go preach and you think everybody's going to accept it and then you run into a wall of objection. You say, I'm not going to do this. Being ready to preach means you're ready for success, but you're also ready for a rejection. But let's go further. Look at verse 16. Being ready to preach means he's not ashamed. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why would Paul even hint or think that there could be a possibility of being ashamed? Perhaps Barnes captured the thought. He said the Jews had cast him off and regarded him as an apostate. And by the wise, among the Gentiles, he'd been persecuted and despised and driven from place to place and regarded as the filth of the world and the offscaring of all things. But he still was not ashamed of the gospel. No matter where he turned, they belittled him for the message he preached. He goes to the Jews. You're an apostate. You were once one of us and you turned your back on us. He goes to the Gentiles. What you're preaching is foolishness. And yet he was not ashamed. He was not embarrassed. He was not timid or shy about the gospel at all. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 1 just for a moment. Paul wrote to Timothy. The whole thrust of 2 Timothy chapter 1 is about not being ashamed, uh, not being ashamed of me or of the message. That is me, Paul, the prisoner, or the message of Christ. Don't be ashamed, he said. Chapter 1 is about not being ashamed. But I want you to notice it in verse 7. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a strong mind. What's his point? His point seems to be that Timothy has a little bit 
of timidity about him where he may be drawing back just a little bit from, from being so bold. We don't need that, Timothy. What you need is boldness. Don't be ashamed of the message. It's very possible we could become ashamed of the message of Christ. How so? Well, it's not accepted by most. In your neighborhood, in your family perhaps even, in your workplace, you may be the only one that truly accepts the gospel. And you're thought of as being odd. It's ridiculed by the world. And so why do I want to say, here's what I believe and here's what the Bible teaches. Here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe what he said. Here is his New Testament. Why do I want to do that when I might be ridiculed by the world and by the people at work and by people at school and by my family even? It could be easily a temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. Now go back to our text in Romans chapter 1. The reason that he's not ashamed is that it is the power of, the, of God unto salvation. The power that it has is the reason I'm not ashamed of it. Because I know what I've got. And I know the power that it has. But let's go further. Now, verse 16. We're still talking about the messenger. He's separated under the gospel. He's ready to preach. He's not ashamed, verse 16. And then he talks about the messenger carries with him the power of God to salvation. Look at verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Now notice verse 17. Are you reading with me? For in it, in what? The gospel, he just mentioned it, verse 16. For in it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. What is that all about? Well, it's saying the power is revealed. That is, let me back up just for a moment. The point being that we're seeing is the power of the gospel is the fact that it reveals God's plan for making men righteous. Now let's stop and talk about this expression that's used all through Romans. And that is this expression, the righteousness of God. And we'll better understand chapter 3 and chapter 10 if we understand that expression. That expression, the righteousness of God, does not refer to the fact that God is a righteous God. He is. And this affirms that. But the point of that expression in the book of Romans, and we'll give you evidence of that, is it is talking about God's plan for making men righteous. The righteousness of God is another expression for the gospel. But in the gospel is revealed the righteousness of God, God's plan for making men righteous. Now let's see evidence of that. Chapter 1 says in verse 17 that whatever the righteousness of God is, it's revealed in the gospel. What is revealed in the gospel? What's revealed in the gospel is God's plan for making men righteous. All right, chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Chapter 3, let's get the evidence of this. Look at verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Well, Romans 1 said the law and the prophets had given witness to the gospel message. So here is something that is revealed. It's not according to the law and the prophets, but it's, it's apart from the law. That is, God's plan for making men righteous is not according to the law. One more passage, chapter 10 and verse 3. Some were ignorant of God's righteousness. Why not ignorant of the fact that God is a righteous God? They're ignorant of God's righteousness and went about to establish their own righteousness and have not submitted to the righteousness of God. 
They ignored God's plan, made up their own plan, and did not submit to God's plan. The gospel is something we must submit to. So I'm learning from those three texts, the expression the righteousness of God refers to God's plan for making men righteous. Now here is why there is power in the gospel. Because in the gospel is revealed God's plan for making men righteous. There indeed is your redemptive plan. There is redemption. Now, let's go further. We're still in Romans 1, and notice verse 17. For in it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. What a difficult phrase. What a difficult phrase. Commentators have stabbed at that in all directions. And wording is often quite different in their comments upon that, but many come to the same conclusion at the end. Let's go to the conclusion. And this, what is the point about from faith to faith? It's revealed from faith to faith. God's plan for making men righteous is revealed from faith to faith. And then evidence is Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. Quoted in Galatians 3, by the way. Hebrews 10 also. It's the idea that the story of salvation by faith, the righteousness of God, was revealed in order to produce faith. That's how it is from faith to faith. The righteousness of God, God's plan for making men righteous was revealed. That salvation by faith has been revealed in order to produce faith. Paul, what are you preaching? I'm preaching the gospel of God. Why was it revealed in order to produce faith in people? As it is written, the just shall live by faith, Habakkuk 2, and in verse 4. Now, let's go back to verse 16. He said, it is the power of God unto salvation. That's the point we're driving at in this study, in Romans 1. The power of God to salvation. The gospel, because it contains God's plan for making men righteous, is the power of God. The power is in the gospel and is in God. And the power is not in the man. We need to understand that. We, we will acknowledge that. If this were a Bible class, everybody would nod their head and they would agree. And we'd all say, yes, we believe the power is in, in God and it's not in the man. But we sometimes think if this man, because he's a dynamic speaker, could present it, I believe people would accept it better if it came from him. The power is not in his delivery. The power is in the message. That's where the power is. It's in God and in the revealed will and not in the man himself. Not in his style or in his ability. Now that's the reason Paul gave that I'm not ashamed and there is no disgrace and I'm not embarrassed about the gospel at all because as I present it to people, I'm giving them God's plan for making men righteous. Ridicule it if you want, but I am not ashamed, he said. So what have we learned about the messenger? He said, I'm separated under the gospel. I'm a servant. I'm ready to preach. I'm not ashamed. And I hold in my hand the power of God to bring salvation to men. That's why I am a messenger. But now let's go further. Thirdly, let's talk about the need. Why do we need to preach? Why do we need to talk to our neighbor? Why do we need to invite someone to come to church with us? We know what the message is. We know we need to be messengers. Why is there a need? One of the major thrusts of chapter 1 is the world is in sin. The Gentile world is in sin. Chapter 2 says the Jews are no better. It's a world of sin. Three things we want to notice now about this world of sin. The first is the results of the world living a corrupt life. 
And his whole point, this, by the way, this is, this is so parallel to 2 Timothy 3. After listing all the terribleness of the perilous times, the answer is found in the gospel of Christ. Verse 16 and 17, the inspired will of God. He just went at it in reverse order in Romans 1. He's presented to us the gospel, the power of God, and here's the reason we need it. Because the world is so corrupt and in sin. What about the results? The sin that the world is committing has stirred the wrath of God. We won't have time to read all of Romans chapter 1, 18 to 32. We're not going to attempt, but we'll hit the high points. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It stirs the wrath of God, he says. Here's what it's done. Here's the result of the world living like they live. Verse 18 to 20 argues the fact they know better than that. In fact, they are without excuse. They can look at creation and understand his power and his Godhead. Look at verse 20, at the end of verse 20, so that they are without excuse. The world, even though they're Gentiles, even though they're pagan, could look at creation and know there is a God and should conclude they ought to be serving this God. But look at how they live. They're without excuse. They know better. Verse 32 says they even know that God has wrath. And so they've stirred the wrath of God because they know better than what they're doing. They may be Gentiles, but they know better. Verse 24 and verse 28 says, God gave them up. Look at verse 24. So therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness. In other words, God tries and God tries and God reaches and God reaches. But finally, people become so corrupt, God gives them up to a reprobate mind. Look at verse 28. We'll come more to this in a moment. God gave them over to a debased mind. God gave them over to a debased mind. Finally, God gives them up. In other words, God finally turns loose of them and lets them go. A.T. Robertson observes at verse 28, this idea of giving them up. He says, he parallels that to, he says, it's, it's like an abandoned building that's a home of rats and snakes. That you finally just let it go and it's gone. I'll turn it over to them. They can have it. And so their minds have become so corrupt, God's gave give them up. That's the results of the kind of life the Gentiles were living. That's why the gospel is needed. Here's a second thing about the gospel or about the sin. And that is he begins to list the sins themselves. This is the heart of 21 to 32. What the kinds of things are they doing? Well, first of all, he says, they did not glorify God. Verses 21 to 25. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. What does that mean? Well, they changed the glory of God to be likened unto man. That is, they changed the image of God, at least in their mind. They can't change God at all. But they took God, and, and in their mind, they changed the thought of God like He's man somehow. He's not deity who has power over us. He's just like another man. That was the idea. They changed the glory of God. The reason for that is they serve, look at verse 24, God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. In other words, so they could serve their own lust. So they changed the image of God. They changed their thought about God so they could do what they wanted to do and live like they wanted to live. That's the point. They didn't glorify God. Look at verse 26 and 27. One of the sins of the Gentiles is they were given to homosexuality. Let's read verses 26 and 27. And notice the statements he makes about homosexuality. He said, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Here's another expression of God giving them up, 24, 28, and 26. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. 
Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. What did you learn from that context? I learned their passions were vile. Homosexuality is vile. It is against nature. It is shameful, according to verse 27. It is referred to as error in verse 27. That's the condition of the Gentile world. They received their penalty which was due, the text says. God didn't think much of homosexuality. That's why they need the gospel that has the power to save. Now verses 29 to 32 list is a whole catalog of sins. Time would not permit us to comment upon each one of them, but he calls it all unrighteousness. They've given themselves over to all kinds of unrighteousness. Like what? Well, here's a whole list of sins. Sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, and approved of other people's sins. That's such a long list, we won't even remember all that when the chart is gone. No, when you read the text and close your text, you won't remember all the details of that. They had a whole parcel of sins. That's why they need the gospel. That's what we're driving at. Here's the need. Look at the sinful world. But I want to close by looking at the reasons they commit those sins. I know the results. He says the Gentile world is given over to sin. And don't forget before you get, get, get excited, the Jews chapter 2 are no better but they're given to sin. The result is it's stirring the wrath of God. That's why they need the gospel. The sins have been enumerated. But why are they doing that? They did not retain God in their knowledge. Look at verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. What does that mean? They're not committing these sins all the while thinking about there is a God in heaven. There's a great God who's revealed his will and I want to serve him as best I can and I want to do whatever he wants me to do and I want to find out what his will is. They're not thinking that. Push God out of their knowledge. Turn with me to Psalm 14. If you don't turn to another, get this, get this one. This may explain some things. In connection with Psalm 14, I mean, uh, with, with, uh, we're turning to Psalm 14. But this may explain some things of Romans 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You say, yeah, I remember that. I remember that text. I am familiar. The fool said there's no God. Why does he finally shut God out of his way? This doesn't explain everyone. This explains some. Notice the very next phrase. They are corrupt and they've done abominable works. And there's none that does good. Quite often the person who's ready to say there is no God. And I reject God and I reject the concept of God is because of the way they're living in their life. There's sin in their life. The fool has said there is no God. The reason he's saying there is no God is he's corrupt. There's sin he wants to hold on to. Let's go back to Romans 1 and see if this doesn't make a connection. Why are they so rampant in the sin? Because they didn't retain God in their knowledge. Why did they not want to retain God? This is maybe somewhat circular, but each one feeds the other. Why do they not retain God in their knowledge? Because of what they like to do. Because of the sin they're involved in. And so, 
they're driven by the base mind. Look at verse 28 again. Even as, God did not re- even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. A reprobate mind, one translation would say. Vincent says that means simply literally not standing the test. Disapproved and rejected. It's like, and one lexicographer talks about the testing of coins and find out it's not, it's not genuine, it's not real, and so therefore you, it's rejected. They have a debased mind, a reprobate mind. What does that mean? Well, it's, they have rejected God and pushed God out of their knowledge. So that means their mind is, is disapproved. Their mind is corrupt. Their mind is, is just foreign from God. And because of that, that's why they're living like they're living. They've rejected God, so God has rejected them. They, God gave them over to a debased mind. So what have we seen in this section? I see the need for preaching the gospel. The gospel is God's power to save, and, and, and it needs to be presented to the world. Why does it need to be presented to the world? Because of the sin that the world's in. There's a world of sin out there. We see the results of sin stirs the wrath of God. God gives them up. The sins are enumerated. And then the reasons people engage in those sins. And that's why the gospel needs to be presented. Romans 1 presents to us the gospel is God's power to save. The message is the gospel of God. The messenger should be ready to preach. The need is there is a world of sin.